Let's get into Acts chapter 17 tonight. We're in week 30 going through the book of Acts. And we're going to start in Acts chapter 17. Last week, Paul was in Berea. And you remember that? They responded well. They said that the Jewish people there were more noble than the others. And so they responded well to the gospel. When the gospel was presented to them and preached, they... They responded well. They actually searched out the scriptures. They spent some time studying to see if these things were true. And then there were some converts and some fruit there. Paul uh, left to go on ahead because there was some trouble. And he left Silas and Timothy behind. We're not told exactly how long they were there. But Silas and Timothy remained in Berea to continue doing some work, continue doing some discipleship, having conversations with people, explaining the gospel more clearly, and just really doing the work of the ministry. So that's where we pick up in verse 14. It says, Then uh, the brothers, we're Acts 17, 14, Then the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea, but Silas and Timothy remained there. Those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens, and after receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they departed. So Paul gets to Athens, and then he gives a command for Silas and Timothy to come and meet him there. And this, and this again, this was kind of a normal thing. We, we actually see this in several cities. So verse 16. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, before we jump into this, one of the things I want us to observe tonight is how Paul did ministry and how he presented the gospel, all right? You know, we may not have the same calling that Paul has. Uh, we may not have the same gifting that Paul has. But everyone in this room, if, if you consider yourself a Christian and a believer, you have a duty and a calling to be an ambassador for Christ. An ambassador is someone who, who sort of stands between and mediates and, and communicates. The Bible says that we've been called, every Christian, to the ministry of reconciliation. That is, reconciling lost people to God. And if, and, and, and if you look at your Christian life and you ask yourself, am I doing that? Okay. Do, do I have a part in that ministry of reconciliation? Now, it may not look like Paul's. It may not look like mine, you know, like as a pastor of this church. But what part do you have in reconciling lost people to God? Because now that you've been saved, that is your primary purpose here in this life. And even if you go, well, I'm not doing it, you know, specifically, well, then you ought to be attached and helping someone that is. In other words, you ought to have a part in that because there's no greater, there's nothing else more important in this life, nothing else more important in this world. The short time that we have left here, it is all about reconciling those who are still lost and bringing them to God, bringing them into the kingdom of God. And so often we can live without that mindset and, and we can just go, you know what, I'm yeah, I'm working on my family, I'm working on my business, I'm working on my health, I'm working on my kids, and, it's, and my relationship with God, and that's all good. But really, we're supposed to, at some point, we're supposed to get those things to a, a healthy enough place where now our focus can shift a little bit to where we can actually reconcile and reach the world. And if we're not doing that as a church, as individuals, then we're, we're missing it to a certain degree. Now, I'm not telling you you got to go stand on a street corner on a soapbox and, you know, preach, hey, repent for the kingdom of God is near. Nothing like that. But how many of you believe you have the Holy Spirit on the inside of you? Okay, that means everywhere you go, the Spirit of the living God is on the inside of you. And, and you are encountering lost people. I don't know if you ever have this experience, but sometimes I'll be somewhere like a coffee shop or maybe somewhere more crowded, like, you know, you'll be maybe at the mall or... Uh, I took my daughter to <clears throat> Six Flags a few months ago. You know, you're there, and there's tons of people there, and you just have one of these moments where you start looking around, and you go, man, how many of these people are lost? Like, how many of these people actually know God? And as believers, that ought to be on our mind from time to time. So it's our calling to reconcile people to God. And I believe that God used, you know, he created your personality and how you are. And if it's like the most terrifying thing in the world for you to, to engage a, a stranger in that way, I understand that. That's not really my personality either. But 
I, I try to be sensitive to paying attention to when God's opening a door in somebody's life. But what I want you to pay attention to tonight is how Paul does this. Because it shouldn't be off the table either to do it the way Paul did it. So pay attention to what he does. Pay attention, number one, the, the kind of the strategy that he uses. And then he's going to preach a short sermon. And I, and I want us to really look at that sermon that he preaches. What did he feel compelled to tell lost people? You know, what kind of information did he feel compelled to, to, to communicate to somebody that was far from God? And that ought to inform us of how we should be talking to people. What kind of things matter? You know, what kind of things should, should be being said? So we're going to see some of that tonight. So uh, he, he, he's waiting in Athens, verse 16. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit, because he has the Holy Spirit on the inside of him, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he's having one of those moments I was talking about earlier where he's looking around the city and he's seeing a lot of idols, a lot of statues, a lot of false worship. And he's having the same thought we were talking about. He's going, a lot of these people are lost. They don't know the gospel. They don't know Jesus. They, they think they're serving God, but they're not. They're serving false gods. And so it says that his spirit was provoked. How many of you know that it would be good for our spirit to be provoked every now and then? Provoked meaning maybe agitated. Maybe maybe une- maybe uneasy. Provoked meaning maybe move to action. Move, move to action where you, you see something that bothers you and where it, if you're not provoked, maybe you could just turn away and ignore it. But because your spirit was provoked, you just, you just about can't. Sit still, you, you have to do something. You ever felt like that? It'd be good for some of our, you know, apathy that we've experienced in the Christian church and the lukewarmness that we've experienced in the church. It would be good for a few Christians to get provoked a little bit. Have you ever had somebody provoke you to anger? That's how that word's normally used. You're like, you know, I don't normally act like this, but they provoke me. You ever had somebody provoke you in that way? You're like, that's not really me, but they kind of got under my skin. Well, that could happen in a good way too, and that's what happened to Paul. You know, maybe he's in Athens, he's thinking, I'm going to wait for Silas and Timothy, you know, and I'm going to just kind of wait till they get here. But he couldn't because he was provoked. And he was provoked by their lostness. He, they, he, was, he was provoked by their situation, their, their, them being disconnected from God. You know, one of the signs of being lukewarm and apathetic is if you're never provoked by other people's lostness. If you never are provoked and you never feel anything, you never feel any sadness, you never, you never feel any conviction about people being lost around you. If that never impacts you at all, that's not a good sign. Because I can tell you the Spirit of God on the inside of you is grieved by it. And wants to do something about it. And so that's what's happening here. Paul's seeing this and his, his spirit is being provoked. Verse 17. So he did something. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons. And in the marketplace every day with those who happen to be there. Now pause for just a second. And, and I know we read this and we think, okay, this is Paul. But I, I want you to put yourself in that situation for just a minute. Because we've all traveled, right? You go, you go somewhere, you show up in a city, and you're, you don't know anybody. You don't have any friends. You don't have any family. You know no one there. And the, the idea of actually making an impact, like imagine going on vacation somewhere. Like you go over to, maybe you go down to Florida, you know, to the beach, and you're there. And you don't know anybody there, and you just show up. And to have the idea that I'm going to make an impact in this city in the f- short few days that I have there, that's kind of absurd almost, isn't it? To think, I'm going to actually have an impact on this whole city in this very short amount of time out here. Yet this one man, that's exactly what he did. Now, I'm not telling you, like, I don't do, this is not, again, I don't go into cities and just start, like, making an impact just by being there. And, but this is what he did. I mean, he, he showed up in Athens. He knew no one. He had no family, no friend, no connection, no ministry groups, no ministry organization. This is like raw missionary right here. This is like Navy SEAL missionary right here. This is just drop me off anywhere and I'll make an impact. <laughs> Give me a synagogue, a few people that want to listen, and like I'm going to just, I'm just going to go to work. 
And I'm going to trust the Holy Spirit that's in me to, to do something here. Now, we also know that in some cities, he didn't have any fruit. You know, he, he tried that. He attempted that and he didn't have any fruit. So here, but in this case, he does. So this is what he began to do. Number one, he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews. This is his, mo- this is his mode of operation. We see this every time he goes to the synagogue. He begins to reason with the Jews. He tries to find Jewish people that are open to the gospel because they already know the scripture. They already love the scripture. So he begins there. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. So he'd go out every day, he'd go to Walmart and he'd get his little basket and he'd start walking around, you know, and they're outdoors, probably outdoor market, something like that. And he's there and he's spending his time. Maybe he's picking up some figs and some you know, walnuts and things like that, maybe a little bit of honey, you know, something. He's walking around, and then he's got his eyes open, and he's looking around. He, maybe he would see somebody standing off by themselves that had a certain look about him. Maybe he's checking his spirit. He's checking his heart, going, okay, who, who's open? Who, who is the Lord working on? And he's checking his spirit. And next thing you know, he goes, okay, I'm going to go talk to this one. So he would go speak with them, and he would strike up a conversation. It doesn't tell us what he said. Doesn't tell us how, how he did that. All we know is that day by day, he would reason in the synagogue and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. And that was his, that was his operation. So you can see for probably a lot of us, this is a little bit outside of our comfort zone, I'm thinking. I mean, it's a little bit outside of mine. It's not something I normally do. And maybe it's part of culture. You know, maybe it's part of our our culture, our American culture. I mean, if you're going through the supermarket and somebody starts talking to you and you don't know them, you kind of look at them with a side eye a little bit, you know, what? why are you talking to me? Who are you? I don't know. Maybe you're not like that, you know, but our culture is not like that. We're kind of to ourselves and we we do our thing and we take care of ourselves and we go on about our, our business. But as believers... It would be good for us when we are going about a very normal, common things to just be open and be aware to what God might be doing around us. And I have found that when I am in that mindset and, and am I'm thinking like that and I'm thinking, all right, God, do you, if you want to use me today, use me today. That's where I've had actual fruit in doing this. When I am not thinking about this and I'm just busy and I'm taking care, I'm running my errands and I'm doing my thing, yeah, usually... There, there seems like there's no opportunity for it. But when I'm mindful of it and I'm praying and I'm asking God, Lord, use me today. If there's somebody you want to minister to, somebody you want to help, somebody you want to speak to, you know, show that. Bring them across my path. Help me with that. Usually when I pray like that and I'm mindful of it, there'll, there'll be something in my way, something in my, my path. And... Uh, you know, there are people in this church, believe it or not, because of experiences like that. I wish, I wish, um, I wish Buster and Amy were here tonight because Buster, Buster's in the church because I stopped by his house randomly one day. <laughs> it's a longer story. But anyway, uh, I didn't know him, but he was selling vegetables anyway. It's a long story. But anyway, they ended up coming to the church. They've been here for a year, you know, going on 10 years now. And so, you know, there are little things like that that the Holy Spirit will, will lead you. He'll help you. He'll just to say a few things. You know, it's easy for me because sometimes people ask me, so what do you do for a living? And that just gives me a door right in. Sometimes I hide it a little bit. I told you that before, but there are reasons for that. Not because I'm ashamed at all, but they, they start acting funny. So, but, um, but it gives me an opportunity so you got to find your way. The point is we're all, every one of us have the same responsibility to reconcile people to Christ. I don't have a greater responsibility just because I'm a pastor. Every Christian, that's how it's communicated. Every Christian has been given the ministry of reconciliation. And if you stand before God and you got you and yours, you and your four saved into heaven, praise God. And you never shared that truth, that revelation. I, you know, I don't know what judgment day is going to be like, but I do wonder if there's going to be people that knew us and they didn't know God and they're standing there on judgment day and they're like, wait a minute, you knew this the whole time 
and you didn't tell you didn't tell me. Now I'm about to go to I'm about to stand before God and answer for my life, and you didn't tell me any of this. I remember my uh, pastor in Shreveport, Pastor Sam Carr. He told he tells a story of a guy, kind of a funny name. The guy's name was Happy Caldwell. You, you, you some, anyway, he wrote books and stuff back in the day, but. Apparently, Pastor Sam knew him before he got saved because Pastor Sam worked at, in the restaurant business, and this guy would come in uh, selling, selling stuff to the restaurant, and he was a big Christian guy writing books and everything and would minister. And after Pastor Sam got saved, they started talking about it, and he asked him one day, he said, he said Happy, how come you never, you knew this the whole time? You saw what a what a sinner I was. You never once told me anything about the gospel. You never told me anything. He says, Sam, I was scared of you. You were mean. <laughs> but yeah, that, you know, we have to get past that. We have to get past that. And again, I, I understand because people always start going, well, yeah, that's not my personality. Yeah, but God will use your personality. That's what I'm trying to tell you. God will use your personality, whatever it is. Maybe you like to send text messages. Maybe you like to write cards. Maybe you like to do kind things for people. You know, I remember when I was in Shreveport, there was a couple across the street that, that lived across the street from me, and a, a husband and wife, sweet, very sweet couple, and the husband came down with uh, brain cancer. And I remember thinking, man, I, I don't know what to do. You know, they know I work at this church. I, I have no idea what to do or how to help them. And... I remember I just said to myself, you know, I'm just going to start mowing their yard. I didn't even ask them. I just, when I'd mow mine, I would just go across the street and start mowing theirs. And long story, but through that, man, I, I ended up getting to pray with that man on his deathbed at the hospital. Like just, and his family, all his brothers, and they were all out of town, they all came over to my house and were like thanking me. Hey, thank you for helping our brother and and it was just simple. I didn't know what to do. I didn't go over there and share the gospel and try to get him saved. I just said, I don't know what to do, but I can do this. I can mow his yard, and maybe that'll be some kind of act of love. Well, one thing led to another and through, the, through several years, and I ended up getting to pray with him, you know, on his deathbed before, before he passed. And um, I believe he's in heaven today because of that. You know, and boy, if he is, he's going to be grateful when I get there. I can tell you that. He's... Whoo, he cut it close. But, you know, you don't always know what to do, but that's, that's okay. That's what I'm trying to say is just use the gifts that God's given you. Maybe you are somebody that loves to talk and you can strike up a conversation with a fence post. That's fine. If, use that. Or maybe not. And you go, I, that's not me. I'm not like that. And you like to work and do stuff with your hands. That's fine too. God can use that. But I just think all of us have to have a mindset of, Hey, let's not lose focus of why we're here. Let's not lose focus of why God left us on this planet after we got saved. You know, because if we just got saved, he could have just taken us on, but we stayed behind because we still had work to do. Amen? All right, so he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. So Paul began to engage not only with those in the marketplace in the synagogue, but now he's in a whole different arena with these philosophers. You know, and they mentioned the Epicurean and the Stoic philosophy, but obviously the Greeks were just known for this. I mean, you know, you had Plato and Aristotle and all these guys, and this was just, and they were just the tip of the iceberg. There was so many. This was like their pastime. This was how they passed their days and spent their time was coming up with new philosophies and of how to live life and what the spirit world was. And just there were so many conflicting ideas. But at this time, at this particular time that he was here, this was a popular, couple popular ones was Epicurean and Stoic. So just real quick, we'll go through what these are, um, just so you have an idea of what he was engaging. But the point is that he began to engage the wrong and false mindsets of the day. And that's one of the things as Christianity that we have to do, is, is to find out what is it exactly that is deceiving the culture. What, what exactly is it that is blinding the culture? What, what, have, 
What are the common mindsets that are derailing them? You know, I could think of a few right now in our, in our culture. You know, and, and you see it in, in the morality. You, you see it, you know, in their, in their, in their views of God. In, you see it in the family, in the divorce rate that we're, we're experiencing, in the, the, the fracturing of the family. Well, those all come from beliefs. It all, it all comes from ideas that we've adopted of what life is and, and I'm supposed to be happy. And if this person doesn't make me happy, then I've got to be me. I've got to do me. Well, those are all philosophies. Those are all ideas that have been put into people's minds. And as the church, part of what we do is engage those wrong mindsets. And we break those mindsets down and we go, no, that's wrong. Here's why and here's what God says. And you'll notice when Paul does this, he doesn't necessarily even get into the weeds with it, so to speak. In other words, he doesn't pick apart every single thing that they believe and spend time trying to, well, here's why this is wrong and doing that. What he actually does is he just brings truth. And he's believing that there's something in them that can recognize truth. And, And see, this is the advantage that we have as Christians there's something in every person that knows there's a God. There's something in every person that yearns for the true God because every person is a spirit being created in the image of God. The Bible says that eternity has been placed in the heart of every man. Every man, every woman knows that there's an afterlife. Oh, sure, they may tell themselves there's not and try to soothe themselves with that because they worry about it and they, they fear about it. But the Bible says that eternity has been placed in the heart of every man. They know that everyone knows there's an afterlife. We know it instinctively. Every culture, every tribe. You could, you could go across and find some tribe that's never interacted with another group on the planet and they would believe there's an afterlife because it's been put in the heart of every man. And that, that spirit being that's on the inside of every person yearns for their creator. And knows that there is a God. Now, you can talk yourself out of anything. You can, you can convince yourself of anything. But deep down, they know that there is a God. And so Paul relies on that. And that's a, that's, that's a lesson for us of how to communicate with people. I don't have to convince you that there's an afterlife. You already know there's one. I'm not even going to get into that because you already know it. I'm not going to, if you say you don't believe in God, I don't have to convince you there's a God because you already know it in here. You may have told yourself not so, but it's in there. It's in there and you know it. So just go through a couple of these things. Uh, Epicureanism, that he says he engaged these guys. Epicureanism, and maybe you'll recognize some of these ideas, you know, in, in our culture today because they, they nothing, there's nothing new. <laughs> there's nothing new. It's, it's, it's all just regurgitated. Uh, but here's what they believe. Everything is matter. In other words, there was no spiritual world. There's just nothing but matter. Nothing but cells, organisms, dirt. They didn't know about cells, but, you know, just matter. Uh, you're dirt. I'm dirt. When I die, you're going to turn to dirt. And that, that's, that's all there is. So we hear a lot of that today. Uh, today they call that science, I think. But it's, it's, and, there, and, of course, science is legitimate. But science knows nothing about the spiritual realm. And science knows nothing about the soul. So everything is matter. Uh, there is no judgment. There is no afterlife. Now, they did believe that there are gods, but they are totally detached from human existence and have no concern with human affairs. So there are gods somewhere off in the distance. They're doing their own thing. They don't even know about us. They're doing their thing. We're doing ours, and we have no connection to them which effectively put people in charge of their own lives, made them the God of of their own life. So there is no higher power that you answer to, so I'm it. I'm the one that's in charge. We see a lot of that today. The main goal, uh, what they taught was that the main goal of life was pleasure, but not like hedonism. Hedonism was just pleasure through whatever you could find and however immoral, whatever. It didn't matter. Just whatever brought you pleasure. But that wasn't the goal for them. Here's how they obtained pleasure. The way they thought you got to the perfect state of pleasure in life was through removing all pain, fear, stress, and suffering. 
So basically, anything in your life that caused you any pain, any fear, any stress, any suffering, you cut it out. So they were, uh, they were not involved in politics because that was stressful. They didn't believe in the afterlife because that's stressful. To think about judgment, that'll stress you out real quick. So anything stress you out. In-laws stress you out, cut them off. They don't, you can't have them. They, because anything, so they were always trying to re- arrive at this perfect state of rest and peace, and it made them, you know, very selfish because anything that stressed me out, any pain, any suffering, cut it out, didn't want to be part of it. So Epicurus, one of the guys that was involved in the founding, he saw the fear of God and fear of death as the two biggest obstacles to perfect tranquility. He said this. He said, the fear of God and the fear of death, which again is in the heart of every person, right? The idea of God and eternity, the idea that there's something after death, The fear of God and fear of death are the two biggest obstacles to reaching this perfect state of tranquility. So, you know what? We're going to just say there is no God and there is no afterlife. You don't worry about death because when you die, you just turn to dust anyway and there's no sense in worrying about it. Now, imagine because Paul's trying to preach to these people that they've been taught, they've been instructed that... Don't tell me anything that's going to stress me out. I'm in this zone. I'm in this tranquil zone, and I don't want to hear about judgment. I don't want to hear about God. All that does is make me stressed. So so that's a big obstacle, right? The other part that they mention is stoicism. Stoicism was the exact opposite, or at least they took opposite approaches. So stoicism, they didn't want to remove pain at all. That wasn't the mindset. The mindset was not to remove pain and suffering and difficulty, the mindset was to become immune to it. So have no emotions. That's where you get the word, you know, stoic. To be very stoic means to have no emotions. So no matter what happened, it, it wasn't going to move me. So they trained themselves to not be moved by pain, loss, difficulty, death of a loved one. Just, it doesn't move me. The goal in life is to stay in this perfect tranquility. So the primary focus was to improve one's ethics and morality through self-control and fortitude and overcome destructive emotions, to be free from anger, jealousy, pride, envy, and not to be ruled or influenced by your desires or emotions, but that you should have total and complete control over your emotions and desires. The good life was achieved by the state of the soul, not by external things. And there's a lot of good you know, a lot of these things every now and then, what do they say? A blind hog finds an acorn every now and then, I guess. So, yeah, there's a lot of good things in here that that's true. Some of the things they're saying are true. But also it's mixed in with a lot of things that are false. But this idea that the good life is achieved by the state of the soul, not by external things. So they didn't try to achieve happiness, which this was good. They didn't try to achieve happiness by getting stuff, getting wealth, getting influence, The idea was you don't get yourself happy by getting those things. You get happy and you reach that place of perfection by the state of your inner person. But they left God out of it. So there was a lot of emphasis on self and the ability of self achieving that. And of course, you know, without God, that's going to leave you empty. Later, Paul writes about these, I think he was referencing some of these mindsets in Colossians chapter 2, verse 20. He said, if with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Referring to things that all perish as they are used according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom, in promoting self-made religion and aestheticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. So I think Paul is saying some of that because these influences were there, and he was saying, look, just just having self-control and mastering your emotions and being very strict morally, he said, "That, that doesn't actually change the flesh. In, with the gospel and with salvation, there's a miracle that happens in the heart. The heart is born again, and we are crucified with Christ, 
and we receive power to overcome the flesh by the power of God, not just strictly by self-control. And if you've ever tried to live morally just strictly by self-control, you know the difficulty of that. But when you have the power of God on the inside of you, the grace of God on the inside of you, who's changed your heart, changed your mind, and he's given you that power and ability to do it, it's totally a different experience. So back to Acts chapter 17. Now we're in verse uh, 19. So he engaged these different philosophies. These are just part of some of the mindsets that he was, that he was dealing with. And whether you realize it or not, you know, we are dealing with philosophies ourselves. As we preach the gospel, as we try to minister to this world, we're encountering these philosophies that are being taught and perpetuated that are preventing people from coming to the gospel. And if you're not careful, you'll be affected by those philosophies more than you're affected by the Word of God. And if you're not careful, your children will be affected by those philosophies more than they are by the Word of God. Because when you live in a culture and it's in and around you all the time and it's the, your, your friends have it, your teachers have it, if you're not careful, they will adopt those mentalities and they'll start to think more like the, the world and the world's philosophy than they do the Word of God. And so you have to be very wise to that. Acts chapter 17, verse 19. And they took him and brought him to the era. Aeropagus, saying, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting, for you bring some strange things to our ears. <laughs> we wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now, all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. Isn't that interesting? So, this is how they spent their time. Always wanted to hear something new. Always wanted to hear a new idea, a new philosophy. I guess they had what Paul later called itching ears. You know, always wanted to hear something new, hear something else. Well, if you're a Christian, you don't feel like that, right? Because once you've heard the gospel, you're like, that's it. I've, I've got the truth now. This is the truth. I don't need to hear something new, some new revelation, some new idea. Because we realize you found the truth. The reason they're still searching is... They haven't found the truth, and there's something in here still missing. So they're, they're always sitting around talking, debating, and discussing. Always wanting to hear something new. So Paul comes in. That was kind of how he had his door. You know, these guys, they want to hear something new. He's like, hey, I got something new. What do y'all think about this? He wants to lay it out before him. Now, it mentions the Areopagus, and this was actually a group. So the Areopagus refers to a group of people. Uh, it was at a specific location, also called later Mars Hill. It was a center for debate and discussion. So it was a group of Athenian leaders, thinkers, and philosophers. They were on this council. They were looked at as the, the wisest of the wise, the most educated, you know, and they were on this group. It's kind of similar to the Jewish Sanhedrin, if you... If you remember earlier in the book of Acts, we had the Jewish Sanhedrin and Gamaliel and all the, the most respected, most influential Jewish people sat on this council and they could make decisions and they would judge things. Well, that's what this is for the Athenians. The Areopagus was a, a group of thinkers and philosophers that made decisions on things and they sometimes had opposing views. They didn't all agree. They, had, they looked at things differently, but they would bring people that had new philosophies, new ideas you know, uh, new theories, and they would listen to them, and they would make a determination, is this something that we should consider, something we should think about, or something that should be rejected? They would kind of make a decision on it. So they bring, they bring Paul, and Paul is here because they have such an interest in what they call new things, and so they're still searching for new things, and Paul is, you know, discerning of this, so now he begins to preach to them. And this is where I really want you to pay attention because Paul, you know, had such a gift to communicate to those that, that were, you know, different than him, but kind of discerning, kind of discerning where they were at and what they needed to hear. And you're going to see that this sermon that he preaches here is actually very different than some of the other ones that you read in the Bible 
that he, that he preaches. In other words, when he was talking to Jewish people, it looked and sounded one way. But when you, re, when you hear this sermon, you're going to see it's, it's packaged totally different than what he normally does. Verse 22. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. We're going to kind of read the whole sermon, and then we're going to come back and unpack it a little bit. So he says, I I perceive in every way that you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. Nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything. Since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth. Having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. That they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As even some of your own poets have said. For we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring. We ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone. An image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. That's Jesus. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. But others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst. But some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysus, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. Dionysus, it says, was an Areopagite, which means he sat on the Areopagus. So he sat on the council. He was one of those that sat on the council, and he believed. And then this woman named Damaris and It says others with them. So let's recap some of the main points of Paul's teaching. There are actually ten things that I noted that that he brings out here. So number one, the number one thing he said to them. and, And remember, guys, remember... This is so important because he could, have, he could have taken time to try to break down Epicurean ideas and Stoic philosophies. and He didn't waste his time with all that. He, he's banking on and counting on there's something in you, and it's not in everybody. I mean, every, he knows everyone's not going to respond. But there's, there's some in the crowd that are going to hear this, and they're go, there's something in them that's going to latch on to it. And he knows that everybody's not going to do that. But this, this goes with his belief of who it is that comes, to, comes into the gospel. He knows everyone's not going to respond. That's never how it is. But he's, he knows that there's a, group, there's, a, there's, a, there's a group of people in the audience that are going to latch on to truth. And he's trying to draw them out. That's who he's looking for. So the very first thing he says is, God can be known. It's the very first thing he says. God can be known. He says, he, he used something that they had, this altar with the inscription that said, to the unknown God. And he said, no, wait a minute. God can be known. You, you built this altar to what you call the unknown God, and what you call unknown, he said, I proclaim truth about. In other words, what's unknown to you is known to me. So let me explain who he is. I've had this conversation with people. One time I was having a conversation with a guy, and there were others involved in the conversation, and he said he was an atheist, and we were doing this debate thing back and forth. You know, he was saying this and this point, and I was bringing this up, going, well, that's ridiculous because of this, and we weren't getting anywhere. And finally, 
I just looked at him and said, look, let me, let me tell you something. I know God is real because I've met him. And I said, you don't have that. You don't know because you haven't. I said, but I have met God. And I told him the story about when I was 15 years old, how I encountered God at a youth camp. I said, I have met. You can't tell me somebody's not real that I've met. And that's the difference is I have a relationship with him. That's what Paul is saying here. He's saying, you, you're saying to the unknown God, well, guess what? I know him. And let me tell you about him. You don't know him. See, for those of us in here that know God because we've encountered God, that's, that's your best testimony. That's your best testimony is your experience with God and what you have experienced and what God means to you and what he's done for you. That is your number one best, best tool to use in ministering to someone and reconciling them to Christ. It's no different than if, you know, I go across the street to Whataburger and I get me a big bacon cheeseburger and, and I love it and I eat it and it's delicious and then I find somebody a few days or weeks later, and they go, oh, man, I never had Whataburger. Like, am I going to try to logically break down all the reasons why Whataburger is better, or am I going to just tell you about my experience? I'm going to say, look, man, I got a cheeseburger the other day. I'm telling you, it's one of the best cheeseburgers i ever had. You need to get over there and try it. What is that? I'm just telling you my experience, and it's going to impact them. I mean, if they have any, if they know me, if they know me to be a credible person, it has even more impact. If maybe I'm a friend or family or they've seen me, they have any respect for me at all, they're going to go, man, Josh said that was the best cheeseburger he ever had. What is that? That's called my witness. That's all I'm doing. I'm being a witness to an experience that I had. I'm not sharing the gospel as much as I'm just, I'm telling you what has changed my life. Can you do that? Can we do that? I mean, when you're talking to someone, can you say, hey, look, I, I hear what you're going through and, and everything, but let me just tell you something. I was going through something similar, and I want to tell you what happened to me. You could take it or leave it. I don't care. But I just want to tell you what happened to me. Because what happened to us is real. It's a real experience that needs to be shared with other people. You're not trying to sell something. <laughs> you know, It's not like you're trying to sell a vacuum cleaner or something. Like You're, you're telling people your experience. And why would we be ashamed of that? Why would we be ashamed to tell other people our, our experience? It's like, you know, if you, if you witnessed a car accident and a police officer comes up and he says, were you a witness to the accident? You say, yeah, okay, tell me what you saw. And you start telling it and somebody else says, well, that ain't what happened. I saw this. Hold on a minute. I'll get to you in a minute. What did you see? I want to hear your witness. Why? Because your eyewitness viewpoint is valuable and it means something even in a court of law it would mean something that's the gospels all all four gospels are just eyewitness accounts mark matthew mark luke and john they're just writing out this is what happened people oh i don't believe that i said look this is what i saw this is what i experienced you take it or leave it i don't care this is my experience that is the biggest part of sharing the gospel that is the biggest part of reconciling people to christ is just taking your experience and sharing it with others the problem comes in when there begins to be disdain and persecution for that. And so we want to dial it back and we want to be quiet and we don't want to share about what happened. But really, we need to be bold and say, look, this was my experience. And that's what Paul is doing here. He's saying, you're serving what you call the unknown God, but I know this God. And here's what he's like. So he begins, second thing, he says, this God is the creator of everything. He's the creator of all. Number three, he rules over heaven and earth. This doesn't sound foreign to you, but it was foreign to them. They had all kind of ideas of gods. And the ones we mentioned before, Epicurean and Stoic, they didn't believe in a god like this. One group didn't believe in God at all. The other group said, well, yeah, they're God, but they're very distant. So, no, this was very new to them when they hear, wait, the God that you serve created everything, including me? That's... That was a revelation to them. And you might be surprised how many people that is a revelation to. If they weren't raised in church and depending on their background, not realizing that, for, for example, you, you watch, some, you can find these types of videos online of these 
college students that have been told their whole life that there is no God and, the, and that the only thing you can believe in is evolution. And all evolution is is that you came from a big glob of, of mud and cells out of, out of the goop and, you know, there's no purpose to your life. And, and you look at them and say, hold on, just the opposite. There's a creator that created everything and you were created in his image and he put you on this planet for a reason and a purpose and he has a plan for your life. He knows who you are. He knows your name. He knows how many hairs are on your head. That's a very contrasting worldview. And I've seen these interviews on, on college campus with these people that they've only ever been told, you've just evolved you know, from a monkey and that came from this and it came from cells and there's no point to life to when they realize, no, there's a God, there's a creator, he knows you. And you see the light go off in their eyes. Why? Because that's in the heart of every man. And so Paul explains this to him. He says, no, there's a creator. There's a designer. And that was an important part of his explanation. He rules over heaven and earth. Here was another big one for him. He doesn't live in temples. He doesn't live in temples. And this was a big one. He doesn't need anything from man. See, this, for, for all these religions and almost every other world religion, it's all about what you got to do to appease God. What sacrifices you got to make, what penance you have to pay, what things you got to do to earn the favor and earn the favor of the gods and get their blessing and all of that. Christianity is the opposite. He says he doesn't need anything from you. As a matter of fact, this is exactly what he told him. It's the opposite. Man needs him for everything. You are connected to him. In him, you live and move and breathe. In other words, the very breath in your lungs, the beating of your heart, you wouldn't have it right now, except he gave it to you. So he's flipping that, that script. God doesn't need anything from you. As a matter of fact, you're connected to him, and you're, you're, you're on life support right now from him. Even the breath and the beating of your heart, it's on loan, so to speak, from God. Number five, he said, all men and nations came from one man. So he goes back to Adam. And he says, no, we didn't come from goop. <laughs> we didn't evolve. This is a big one, by the way. And I don't think we have an issue with that tonight. But, you know, even in Christian circles, they question, some, some people question the creation story. Oh, we didn't all come from one man. Well, Paul used it as, a, as part of his sermon. As part of his sermon to preach the gospel, he said, we all came from one man. We came from one man, Adam. All nations came from one man. God created Adam and the whole world multiplied from there. Number six, I love this. Those who seek God will find him. He's not far. That's what he tells them. He's not far. And those who seek God will find him. If you seek God, if you're humble enough to seek God, you will find him. Number seven, he says, man is the offspring of God created in the image of God. Wow. What a, what, again, what a different mindset than, say, evolution in our time. Man is the offspring of God. Literally, we are sons and daughters of God, and we were created in the image of God. And he's telling them that because they're worshiping idols of silver and, and gold and stone. And he's saying, he's saying that. That doesn't make sense. He said, God is actually like us. We've been created in the image of God. He's, he's more human-like than he is anything else. In other words, human in the sense of he's got two arms, two eyes, a nose, a mouth, legs. He's in the image. We're more like him. We've been created like him. God is a lot like us. Number eight, he mentions repentance specifically. He says, men everywhere should repent. In other words, they should turn from their ways. They should reject what God calls sin. Number nine, he says there's a day of judgment where you will give an account and you will answer for your life. And number 10, there is a resurrection and an afterlife. Wow. He packed all of that into a few paragraphs. And really, it'd be good for us to study that and think about because you... All those things he covered. He's given us insight into how he converted people. How, how he got people to see the light. When he explained these things. You're going to see, what you're going to see in here 
is a lot about who God is and who you are. It's explaining who God is and who you are. He's the creator, you're the creation. He's the judge, you're the one who's going to give an account for your life. He's the father, you're the offspring. He's the perfect, you need to repent. So this whole thing is about who God is and who you are. And that's how the gospel is presented. It's, it's an explanation, a clear explanation of who God is and who you are. Who God is not, who you are not. And again, the, the sort of cheat factor is, this is all already in the heart of every man. They, when, you, when they hear it, there's something in them that goes, that's, that's right. I know that. Now, I understand some people reject it, and that, that's, that'll happen. And sometimes it takes multiple exposures. But ultimately, that is on the heart of every man. Okay. So that's the end, uh, that's the end of the chapter. And I want to close just by looking at a couple of the key converts. I always like to look at this because Paul is in Athens. This is another city along the way of his journey. Uh, we have two people mentioned. The first one converted is Dionysus, who was on the uh, Areopagus. He sat on that council, so he was converted, obviously very influential person. And then they specifically name another woman named Damaris. Uh, interestingly, the word Damaris, her name means cow or heifer. Not the most flattering name. I, I don't know who named her. That's be kind of offensive every time you can you imagine they probably called her something for short because that just hey heifer come on you know that just doesn't work so we mentioned they mentioned Dionysus and Damaris and then it says and others with them were converted so obviously they mentioned these two people for a reason we don't know what that is probably they ended up being influential in that in that church that was planted there we do not get uh I mean, we don't know much about what happened at Athens after this because Paul didn't write a letter to him, an epistle, or if he did, we never received it. And then in his other journeys, he he doesn't visit Athens again, which is strange. So we don't really know why. But when he goes, a lot of times when he would go on his other missionary journeys, he would stop and visit the places where churches were established. But on the third missionary journey, he doesn't go to Athens. So not really sure, you know, we don't really know exactly what happened there, but obviously there was fruit and there were people converted and presumably they, they continued to establish at least a small church there and, uh, and then it, you know, begin to, begin to flourish from there. So that's kind of the end of Acts 17 and that ends with that city, Athens, and we kind of see some of the things there. But the most powerful thing to me is that sermon that Paul preached. And I I love looking at that and studying it because it gives us an idea of how to communicate with lost people. And again, that's just part of all of our our job. Any skill that we're developing in life, we should be developing that. We should be developing that skill to be able to interact with people and looking for opportunities to bring the gospel, the light of the gospel into their life. Amen. Amen.